0: Thank you, Paul and Donna. You know, Paul up here, he already gave a good sermon. So, you know, I was thinking of, you know, this time of year when we choose men to be on the board. And, our, and one of the things, key things about elders compared to deacons is elders are supposed to be able to teach. And we usually get Paul's teaching in little bits like that, but thank you. They're definitely good, good things for us to hear and, and be challenged with. Well, turn in your Bibles with me now, if you would, to Galatians chapter 3. And you're like, oh, you're just continuing on with Galatians this morning. Yep, but in God's timing, it's perfect for the Sunday before Christmas. So bear with me. But this week we do celebrate the birth of Jesus. And uh, usually when we celebrate the birth of someone whose time on earth physically was in the past, it's because of great accomplishments that they have done. And certainly that is the case with Jesus, right? What he accomplished in his time on earth was far above and beyond what any other man accomplished. But it's also true that we celebrate his birth because of the fact that he was expected to come. And God faithfully brought Jesus into this world as part of an amazing centuries-long plan. Details, as Paul was talking about, right? They've been planned out with detail over centuries. And so as we look then in Galatians chapter 3, before I read verse 15, remember where we were last week with with verses uh, 6 through 14, how how we saw Paul taking uh, the, the, the believers who lived in Galatia back further than Moses because they had people telling them, Well, if you're going to be saved, before you can believe in Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah, you have to obey the law. You have to be circumcised if you're a man. You have to obey these parts of the Old Testament law if you're going to be saved. You have to do first, and then you can have salvation. But he goes back and shows how Abraham... Further back than Moses, back to the beginning of the Jewish nation, righteousness was reckoned or counted to his account, not because he did, not because he kept the law, because there was no law then, right? But it was reckoned to him because he believed God. And that's really the basis of of the covenant that God made at the end of Genesis chapter 15 where that statement was made that that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned or accounted to him or credited to him as righteousness. And so there's there's the thrust of where Paul has been going. And now he's going to give an example from everyday life when he gets to verse 15. And he says, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. In other words, here's here's an example from everyday life. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So if you make a covenant with another person, you set down the terms of that covenant or that agreement, and you go from the initiating of the covenant to its completion, And you can't just willy-nilly change the terms of the covenant or the contract in the middle, right? You have to go to the end of things and stick to what you said. Here is the end we're headed to. He says it's the same thing. Because from the the point of Abraham believing and it being reckoned to him as righteousness, there were about 600 years until Moses got the law. I know some of you have read ahead to verse 17 already. And it says it would be 430 years. Uh, Probably what Paul is doing is he's counting from the last time that God gave that covenant to one of his immediate, first next few generations of descendants. Because they had 430 years about in Egypt. And Abraham was almost 200 years before that. So for hundreds of years... How it worked was, just like Abraham, people believed God that he was going to send the one through Abraham through whom the blessing would come, in other words, forgiveness of sins, for hundreds of years. Then God brought the law along in order to shape and to mold the people through whom the one who would make that nation a blessing all the world that one who would come and be the blessing himself so that law was a tool for the process right but you don't grab a hold of the tool and say oh well this is the means No, not when already for hundreds of years people how they have come into righteous relationship with god is by believing him just like abraham you can't change the terms in the middle can you and even though it would go on for a long time after that, the conditions were still the same. You know, you think of coming along and you see somebody has accomplished a job. You know, I think I, think I heard Tate was digging a trench yesterday, right? Putting down some, some power line. If somebody came along afterwards and they saw the, the little ex- excavator that he was using, they'd say, yeah, if you, want, if, you want a, if you want a trench, you've got to have the es- es- excavator. That's what does it. Guess what? If you don't have somebody who knows how to run that tool, you're not getting any trenches, right? Or if it was a shovel or whatever, you don't latch onto the tool and say, no, it's the one who operated it. You keep your eyes on the person doing the operating. That's Paul's point here. You don't get in, go to the tool, It was all about Jesus who would come and would provide righteousness by giving his life. They believed looking ahead to the future and because they believed God, what he would accomplish was reckoned or credited to them as righteousness. So there's a direct line from Abraham to Jesus. So the promises that were made to him and Isaac and Jacob we're pointing straight at the coming one who provided what all the people of the world really need. Forgiveness of their sins. And so believing in that one is where how righteousness is, was credited in the past and is credited now as we look back and it's already accomplished. So whatever happens in between the promise and its fulfillment can't change the basic truth of how Righteousness comes to a sinner who deserves condemnation, who, as we saw last week, is under the curse if they've even broken one part of all the law. And so Paul then goes on from there into verse 16, and he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul is giving us a lesson in how to understand the Old Testament. Saying that that when God made that promise, as he did it, he focused in on one individual person. His whole point rests on the idea that the promise has to do with one individual who is a descendant, or literally seed, of Abraham. If the, if the promise is only about the many descendants of Abraham, which now number in the millions, right? Since Abraham lived and there have been millions of people born in his line, right? If that's all that these promises are about, then everything falls apart. What Paul's pointing out here is that the key to this is that the promises also, there were promises to all of those, those descendants. But it was also about a very specific descendant. And turn with me, if you would, now to Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And throughout the course of Genesis, uh, God makes promises, these promises to Abraham on several different occasions. And then he will also reiterate them to Jacob, or Isaac and Jacob. But I think this, this occasion helps us understand Paul's point the best when he says, not to seeds, but to seed, that is to Christ. And one of the reasons this fits the context of what Paul's talking about the best is because it f- comes right after the occasion. When God told Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. You remember that great faith that Abraham exercised in that process, right? He takes this son who God God has told, this is the son of promise. Through him, I'm going to bless you and bless the nations. And we'll get to that a little bit more later. But God says, Take him and kill him. And the New Testament tells us that Abraham had such faith that he knew that even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, he would do that. But you also remember that he never had to actually kill him, did he? He was already got the knife poised above his son. And God provides a ram caught by its horns in the thicket, right? There's a substitute in his place so he does not have to die. And it's right after that whole situation that, we, that we're talking about here in Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. There it says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son... Now, here we get to the promises, so so watch this carefully. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice." Now here's the interesting thing about Paul's argument back in Galatians. is He talks, he says, God said to your seed, not to seeds. And I've actually used that to teach the, the precision with which we can trust God's word. That even though one is the singular and the other is plural, God's word can be trusted. And you can actually make arguments based on that. And that is very true. I may have been an error in the way I've used that. Because interestingly... When the word seed is used in the Bible, it's almost always singular. There's really only one, I think, one instance where the, the plural is used, but the singular is used in a collective form. What I mean by that is, is we use the word seed in our language in the same way. Okay? You might ask someone who's got a field, have you put the, your, have you put the seed in your field? Do you mean one Little seed? No, you mean thousands of seeds, right? Okay? And so we use seed, singular, in a collective sense to talk about all the seeds that went in the field. And it's used the same way here in the Bible. And in verse 17, we start off with it it used in that collective way, talking about many, many descendants or seed. Okay? And so in verse 17, I will greatly multiply your seed or descendants... As the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is on the seashore. So there he's clearly talking about lots and lots and lots of people, right? He's saying, your descendants are going to, if you look up the stars, look at how many they are. That's how many descendants are going to come from you, Abraham. Look at all the sand on the seashore. You can't count it all, can you? That's how, that's how many descendants, or seed, you're going to have. Seed, singular. And so Paul is talking about the intent of the word seed, And it changes for us in verse 17. Because there it says, And your seed shall possess the gate of... Now your version might say his, or it might say their, enemies. In the original Hebrew, it's a singular pronoun. So I think you probably have a better translation if it says, Your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Right in the middle of it, God changes from the collective, or you could say plural, seed, to the singular. Who's going to possess the gate of his enemies? Oh, the coming one, right? Now there were times when Israel did have victory over their enemies. That's kind of the way of putting it. If you went in and you sat in the gate of your enemy's city, you you had defeated them. You were now in charge. And that happened for Israel sometimes. But sometimes somebody else sat in their gate, right? And defeated them. But here he's talking about there is one who's going to come who ultimately is going to be victorious over every one of his enemies. And he's pointing to one. His enemies. And having made that switch when we get to verse 18, again, he's talking about one. And he says, It is in in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, so here we have this one who will come. And notice this happens right after the, the ram was provided in Isaac's place, right? So this one who is coming will become the substitute pictured by the ram and bless all the nations of the earth. Not just the nation that will come through Isaac, the many, many, many descendants, but the nations of the whole earth. And so Paul, in a sense of saying, okay, when you see seed there, it means the one who is going to come. You might say, I'm not sure if I buy your argument. The thing is, is Paul isn't really just trying to pick out one little detail and make a whole argument out of it, although he can. I think he's justified in doing that. What Paul is doing is saying, it's been there all along. What happened with Abraham is just one step along the way in God's revelation. He has been promising the seed ever since man sinned, ever since Adam and Eve said, I'm going to take of the fruit. God has been laying out that plan and been revealing it to us all the way through time. So let's go back to Genesis then. Genesis chapter 3. I guess we're already in Genesis, but let's go back to the closer to the beginning. And if you you remember, Genesis chapter 3 does give the account of how Satan through the serpent tempted Eve first, but, but accomplished getting Adam and Eve to do the one thing God had prohibited, got them to take from that tree and eat because they wanted to have the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to be like God. Well, the result is death came to them, right? Not immediate physical death, but spiritual death. But not only that, but they brought a curse on themselves as they stepped away from the life giver. Uh, As they stepped away from the one who truly gives blessing, they stepped into curse. And so God laid out for them what that curse would be that would be theirs because they had chosen to disobey him. And here he's speaking to the serpent. In essence, Satan, right, who worked in and through that serpent, but he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So now this talks about Eve's seed, singular. Now we've seen that can be used collectively, could be the descendants of Eve, But the thing is, talking about a woman's seed doesn't fit. Um, In Greek, the word for seed is sperma. You get the idea biologically. That's related to the man. So you don't talk about a woman's seed, but God did here. He talked about the seed of Eve that would come and would crush the serpent's head, speaking of Satan, would defeat Satan who had tempted them, would defeat the effects of what Satan's temptation was. So he's he's promised something very unusual that focuses on one person, the seed of Eve, who will be descended from the woman. Not too far ahead, Eve is thinking about this. Just go over to the next chapter, chapter 4. And at the end, there we get to verse 25. And here this is following where sin has gotten so bad so quickly that Cain, Adam and Eve's son, has killed their other son, Abel. And then it says in verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring, same word, seed. So you could say, has appointed me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve was saying, God promised through my seed. And boy, there was Abel. Abel's gone. But God has provided another line, another way for this one to come who's going to crush the serpent's head. She had that, that concept still in mind. She's thinking, God will keep his promise. God will be faithful. And even though I lost the seed of Abel, the seed of Seth, I see future there. And God records her words here to remind us that, that there is this promise of the seed that will come. So we go on. Actually, many years, actually centuries go by, until we get to Genesis chapter 17. And in the meantime, it becomes clear that the line through which this promised one would come go through Noah, because we have the great flood, right? And everyone but Noah's line is wiped out. Uh, it's become becomes obvious then, through the promises to Abraham we've already talked about, That this one who is going to come is going to come through Shem because Abraham is a descendant of Shem. So now the seed of Noah, the seed of Shem. And we get to Genesis 17, verse 19. And there it says, as Abraham is wrestling with the fact that his wife, Sarah, hasn't had a child. How can this be? You promised to make me this great nation you've promised that in me all the nations will be blessed it says but god said no but sarah your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and i will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants or his seed after him now god says the line of promise, the line of the seed which is to come. And now both, both parts of that previous prophecy apply here, right? The many, many descendants are going to be, through Isaac, the people of promise. But there is the one, the seed, the singular seed that is going to come through Isaac. And so God now narrows down the path of the promised one who is to come as a descendant of Isaac. In fact, in Galatians, and we'll get there later, chapter 4, verse 23, Isaac is called the son by promise. So God just keeps on narrowing it down, doesn't he? Broadens it out as population grows, but then he narrows the population down to Noah. Narrows it down again to Shem and Abraham and Isaac. And certainly then out of Isaac a people is is comes about, right? Uh, the Jewish nation or the, the people of Israel become a great nation brought out of Egypt, given the promised land, multiplying into millions of people. And then God makes another promise. A lot of time's gone by. But God hasn't forgotten this plan for the seed. So turn with me now to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. And here, of course, we've come to King David, uh, the man that God chose out to lead his people, uh, David from the tribe of Judah, By the way, God did make a distinction that the king, the coming king, would come through Judah. That goes back uh, to the days of of Joseph. We jump ahead now to here, and and having been made king after going through all kinds of, of incredible circumstances, God makes a covenant with David himself. God makes promises to this this king who's the beginning of the dynasty that God says is going to stay on the throne in Israel. And in verses 12 and 13, this is part of that. It says, When your days are completed and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, or seed, after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, now notice here again, we we have that word seed, uh, your seed, and it's definitely singular here because here God talks about his kingdom and talks about his throne singular. Now, there are promises that are made to the whole nation, but this covenant with David is really about the one who will come for everyone. Here is the object of faith that brings righteousness, and he brings a kingdom that will go on forever. So this indicates that, that this seed, this one who will come, is more than just a man, because what did God just say about David? Oh, when you die, right, And then all, of you know, Solomon and Rehoboam, and you start counting down the different kings, descendants of David who sat on the throne, what happened to them all? If you read those Old Testament books, you know, they were born, they did this, and then they died, they were buried. The next king came along. But he says there's going to be the seed that will come, and he will have a kingdom that goes on forever. In other words, he will endure forever. He will not just be a man hinting at the fact that, in fact, the Messiah will be God. Not leaving his kingdom to anyone, which, by the way, was confirmed by Daniel. But then we run into some problems along the way. We've got this seed coming. God keeps promising the seed will come, the one who will bring blessing to all the nations. But we get to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 22, verse 30. And the people of Israel have not had a very good track record in the way they've followed God and obeyed him, which doesn't catch God by surprise. In fact, he knew all along that they would do this. And and he told them, there's going to come a time when you are so rebellious that I'm going to bring in a nation and they're going to take you into captivity and there you'll stay for a period of time. There's going to be discipline of the nation." Discipline of the seed in the collective sense, right? When we get to chapter 22, verse 30, we have a descendant of David whose wickedness reaches a level that God says these words about him. Thus says the Lord, and this man's name is Kaniah or Jeconiah, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David, or ruling again in Judah. So this Coniah or Jeconiah, as he's also known, because he's so wicked, it says his seed literally will, will be hurled out. His, his seed, no man of his descendants will will prosper by sitting on the throne of David. And so it seems as though David's royal line has been ruined. How will the promises to Abraham and to David be fulfilled? Has God's plan, has his promise failed? Come to an end because of the wickedness of men? We'll get back to that. Then there's also the issue that all along there have been attempts to destroy this seed. And I'm going to hit, hit on some, some of the times that this happened briefly. I'm going to assume maybe that you, you know some of these circumstances. If not, you can dig into the context of these next uh, references that I've given you on your outline. But over the centuries, there, there these attempts to just wipe out this line that God has promised the seed to come through, through, the one that would crush the serpent's head and bless all the nations, because Satan and those he dominates don't want that to happen. They don't want the one who will be victorious over them to be born. And so in 2 Kings chapter 11, if you go ahead and turn back there with me, 2 Kings chapter 11, we have uh, the wicked queen Athaliah. And her son, who was the king, uh, was killed by the the king of the northern kingdom Israel when when the nation that, that had come out of Abraham was split into two parts. The king of the northern part killed the king of the southern, southern part. King Ahaziah was his name. And his mother, the wicked queen Athaliah here says, tried to kill the whole line coming from David off. It says, when Athaliah under, or the mother of Ahaziah saw her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring, or all the royal seed. Don't want to stop there, do we? But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. See, her goal was, let's just wipe out this this seed, wipe out these descendants of David, and I'll just take over myself. Seemed like she was successful. She thought she'd wiped out all of that royal line. But God had provided someone to rescue Joash. And he had to grow up at least a little bit before he could become king. When he was seven years old, they overthrew her. God remained faithful to his promise. The seed continued on. The line to that singular seed was still established. And you may be familiar then also with the, the story of Esther and how, how wicked Haman. He was insulted this Jew who wouldn't bow down to him. And so he gets the king to make an edict. And if you go with me to Esther, chapter 3, verse 13, look at what the edict was and how how he wickedly was seeking not just to destroy this one man, but everyone else who was of his line. Verse 13, it says, Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. Do you see that? To destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews. So his goal was to take all of the power of the Medo-Persian empire that was in charge at that time, and totally get rid of every single descendant of Abraham through Isaac. To totally wipe them out. And you know the story, how God took that, turned it around, and it ends up being a great day of victory then for the people of Israel. And one of the interesting things is if you get down to chapter later on when they are celebrating Purim, that's the celebration of how God turned that from a a terrible defeat into a victory. It talks about how the seed should remember this. The seed of Abraham should be faithful to always celebrate Purim. And then there's another attack, a different kind of attack on the line, in Ezra chapter 9. This is after the people come back from, from exile. And they're getting back in the land, and they're they're getting things settled. And, of course, Ezra has his hands full, and Nehemiah, right, with all that that they do. But there's a a particular attack on the line, on the seed, in chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And it says, And when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, Ezra, saying, The people of Israel and the priests... And the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. According to their abominations, those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has been intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes... And the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garments and my robe, and I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. And then the account goes on to, say, to show how Ezra dealt severely with the people get them to repent and turn away from this, because what was going on was they were just going to intermingle with all of these different peoples, and pretty soon you wouldn't know who the Jewish nation was. You wouldn't know where this line was that was coming down to bring the one, the seed. That was one of the purposes of the law, by the way, to keep the Jewish people a distinct people, to preserve this line that God had promised would bring the seed that God said would bring the one who would bless all of the nations. So you can see all down through the Old Testament, there's the promise, but there's the attack on the promise. There's God's faithfulness, and yet the unfaithfulness of, of mankind and the attack of wicked people on that promise to bring the seed. And yet there was still the hope, the hope that in fact he would come. So let's look at the expected seed briefly in the New Testament. When we get to John chapter 7, verse 40 through 42, here are some skeptics of Jesus. Jesus has come onto the scene. He's preaching and he's doing miracles. He's known as Jesus of Nazareth, right? Jesus from the north, from Galilee. And so in verses 40 through 42... Uh, The different things he had been doing, it says, some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And others were saying, this is the Christ or the Messiah. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said, ah, they paid attention to what the Bible said, right? Has not the scripture said, the Christ comes from Galilee? The descendants or the seed of David from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So in these days, even people who weren't accepting of Jesus were skeptical. So, oh, he's got to come from the seed of David. He's got to be descended through that line. That's why when Matthew wrote his gospel, you go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Look at how he starts out. Doesn't really mess around at all with a lot of other things. He's specifically interested in talking to Jewish people about Jesus, their Messiah. And he says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, who? The son of David, the son of Abraham. The promised seed, in other words. Just as we expected from the Old Testament. Luke chapter 2, that's where we read, you know, the the account of Jesus' birth from usually, right? Luke chapter 2, verse 4, as we're rolling into that account, remember, Joseph has to go where? To Bethlehem. Well, why? Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, uh, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David. Joseph, who was supposed, because he was um, betrothed to Mary, supposed to be the uh, the father of Jesus, was from that line of David. He was in that descendant, that, that royal line that was coming down. Now, there's a problem, though. Because if you take a look back at Matthew chapter 11 and verse uh, <clears throat> verse 11. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Let's look at, at Luke 2, as well. Because it talks about, For in the city of David there is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Emphasizing again the line of David but also in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11, you might notice who's mentioned there. Who is in the line, that's by, by the way, Joseph's genealogy as the legal father of Jesus. In that line is Jeconiah or Coniah. But on the other hand, is not really Jesus' biological father, is he? He bestows on him a legal right, but Jesus does not have a right to the throne through Joseph biologically. On the other hand, Jesus is doubly qualified to have that place because he's called the Son of the Most High. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 35. Here is, is when, when the, the angel is talking to Mary about the child she's going to have. Luke chapter 1, 31 through 35, it says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called, look at, look at what he'd be called, the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob till he dies? forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And so though he was legally raised as the son of Joseph and legally was in the line of the king through Joseph. He was really the son of God by means of the Holy Spirit. But we still got Jeconiah in there, right? If his legal claim is through there, there's a problem. But we have Luke chapter 3. There we have another genealogy And the best explanation for this other genealogy that looks different from the one in Matthew is this is, in fact, the genealogy of Mary's family. And we're not going to look through all of the genealogy, but in verse 23 it starts off and it says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph the son of Eli, and now you see a very different kind of genealogy, and and the best explanation is this is the genealogy of Mary's family. And since Joseph was Jesus' adoptive father, Jesus was in the line of Solomon that had a legal right to reign, but because he was the son of Mary, biologically, physically, he was a descendant of the seed of David, and if you get down to verse 31, he was Goes to David, the son, or I'm sorry, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. See, Mary was a descendant through David's son Nathan, who was also a son of Bathsheba, so a full brother to Solomon. Physically, Jesus was a descendant, a seed of David. And yet only had a human mother, right? He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so his line, his seed was you could say he was the seed of a woman. No man involved. He was descendant, a seed of David. God's plan worked out perfectly through all the mess of human sins and mess-ups and attacks. And here was this one who was born, the seed of Abraham, the seed, singular, of David. So much so that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul makes this great statement. He could confidently say, Jesus Christ, or Jesus Messiah, risen from or out of the dead... Descendant of David, or out of the seed of David. By the way, it's that same word, ek, that we talked about last week, if you're wondering. Out of as a source, the seed of David. And so when the time was just right. Galatians chapter 4. We go back to Galatians again. And verse 4 When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time was just right, God sent His Son, born literally out of a woman as source, so He could save all people, right? But He was born under the law so that He could be the Savior specifically of the Jewish people as well and the multiplied seed of Abraham. And so his coming was the most planned and perfectly timed birth with the exact desired outcome. And he came to crush sin by redeeming us out of the curse that was ours, that we talked about in Galatians chapter 3 last week, right? He came to crush sin by bearing our sin, our curse, and redeeming all who will put their faith in him out of their horrible situation. The seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the promised one, has come to redeem us unto himself. Should we celebrate this week that he was born as anticipated? Should we celebrate this time of year? I believe so. We have all the reasons in the world to do that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are so faithful and patient and loving. And we see that in the birth of Jesus, that that he would come and be humbly born in in a manger, be humbly born with sinners. And you patiently paved that way, put up with sinners for so many centuries. And yet you were faithful to bring the one. And Lord, help us to have a heart of rejoicing, uh, just like those who recognized him right off, like Simeon and Anna and the shepherds and and some of the others that were anticipating his coming, that we would look at that birth with the same joy, the same rejoicing, because he is our redeemer. He is our savior. And, And Father, if there's any here today that haven't entrusted themselves to the one that you sent, that you'd work in their hearts right now that they would eagerly confess their sin and trust you to give them righteousness, that is, forgiveness of their sins, and credit Jesus' righteousness to their account so that they can have an amazing relationship with you. Uh, We look forward to all you have in store for us in this week and, and in this season for your glory. We ask this, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.